Hello, I'm Kate Jabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, 20 years after the September the 11th attacks, how has the world changed? It's horrific. I can't believe this is happening. We saw the smoke coming out and everybody started running out. This mass terrorism is the new evil in our world. The pressures facing British soldiers sent to the evacuation effort in Kabul. Two hours rest at best, grabbing sleep where they could, even senior NCOs stepping down into roles as soldiers to make sure soldiers got more rest than themselves. And as Scotland's government sets out plans for another independence vote, what could it mean for the UK's nuclear deterrent? It's setting up three options, each in their own way are unrealistic. It's 20 years since a group of terrorists hijacked four commercial aircraft and changed the course of history. The September the 11th attacks killed nearly 3,000 people in New York, Washington and Pennsylvania. It led to two controversial wars and fundamentally shifted Western foreign policy for a generation. While the sights and sounds of that day are familiar to most of us, they retain a power to shock. Good evening. America came under attack today from international terrorists on a scale that made it more an act of war. The centre of New York is still smouldering with America's two tallest buildings in ruins. Terrorists also struck with remarkable ease at the heart of America's defence, the Pentagon. People jumping out of windows. I've seen at least 14 people jumping out of windows. It's, it's, it's horrific. I can't believe this is happening. We heard a big bang, and then we saw smoke coming out, and everybody started running out, and we saw the plane on the other side of the building, and there was smoke everywhere, and people were jumping out the windows. As for those that carried out these attacks, there are no adequate words of condemnation. Their barbarism will stand as their shame for all eternity. This mass terrorism is the new evil in our world. And we, the democracies of the world, must come together to defeat it and eradicate it. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbored them. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people, and the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. The sounds of September the 11th, 2001. 
Since that day, more than 70 million Americans have been born and millions more were too young to comprehend what happened. So, 20 years on, what does 9-11 mean now? Well, to discuss that, I'm joined by Michael Evans, former defence editor of The Times, who also covered the Pentagon for the paper, and Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark. Uh, Mike Evans, let's start by going back 20 years. 9-11 is now a fixed point in history, so it's perhaps hard to recall just how astonishing the event of that day were. Absolutely. I, I remember f- fairly soon after the events, uh, there were a lot of commentators and experts and analysts saying that this would change the world forever, that that it was going to be completely different. Tony Blair's comments seemed to indicate that as well. Obviously, in many ways, it has changed the world. But here we are 20 years later, and we're back to square one, not in terms of Al-Qaeda, but here we are 20 years later, and the Taliban are back in power in Afghanistan. So a lot of lessons have been learned, but unfortunately, a lot of lessons have not been learned either. And Michael Clark, the attacks blindsided Western leaders, not least a fairly new US administration, despite intelligence warnings that something big was coming. Yes, the the attack uh, had this element of real novelty. There'd been We'd been used to the idea of aircraft being hijacked or bombs on board aircraft. But the idea of a, of a group of young men simply taking over the flight deck and flying aircraft into buildings was novel. The, the fact is nothing like this has ever happened since because it's the sort of thing you can only do once. But the shock value was partly how easy it was on the part of a bunch of suicide terrorists simply to take over an aircraft and do something like this with it. And Mike Evans, did the West use those intelligence failures to justify ramping up surveillance, do you think? I guess so. I mean, the world has changed in that respect that uh, uh, surveillance uh, became the sort of key thing. But of course, it's not just surveillance that's important. It's the analysis of what you find in intelligence. And I think still, there were obviously huge errors and mistakes and misjudgments made up to 9-11. But there have been a, similar mistakes have been made uh, subsequently. And I think it is one of the big lessons is that uh, you make uh, assumptions, and assumptions are dangerous when they're not backed by proper, real, live intelligence. Mm, and we like to think our intelligence capabilities have improved since then, but the fall of Kabul, uh, Mike Clark suggests there are still some big gaps. Yes, uh, undoubtedly so. As um, the other Michael said, intelligence is only as good as the analysis. And if we start with some assumptions, then the chances are that they'll work their way through. Um, also, I mean, I think Western intelligence agencies have been distracted because there are so many potential threats out there, they're not entirely certain how to allocate their resources. So a great, a great deal of the resource went into looking after, after terrorism at home and trying to deal with terrorist threats around our shores and just beyond our shores. And a fair amount of intelligence still goes into worrying about Russia and China and what happens in Iran and North Korea. Um, and the intelligence on what is happening in South Asia has sort of waxed and waned as our interest in that area has uh, come and gone over the years. Militaries that were set up to fight the militaries of other nations were now tasked with tackling something far looser, groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. How has that altered the structure of forces we see today? Uh, Well, in the case of Britain, certainly, and many of the other European countries, and in the case of the United States, slightly less so. But undoubtedly, the last 20 years has bent us out of shape, that we changed our doctrines and our structures of our militaries to fight counterinsurgency operations, expeditionary operations. 
And, and while we were doing that, our adversaries like Russia and China were watching what we were doing. They were noting our weaknesses and strengths and structuring themselves to make the most of our weaknesses. And so here we are in 2021 playing catch up, trying to redesign our militaries quickly on the basis of a difficult financial circumstances to get back to the sort of capabilities for peer warfare, peer level warfare that we had rather lost over the last 20 years. Mike Evans, Western leaders would say there hasn't been an attack like 9-11 in the last 20 years. Are we safer now than we were then? I wish we were. Again, it's a fact that there hasn't been a, a, a terrorist attack on that scale, but there have been multiple terrorist attacks in all over the place. And so we're not safe in that sense. The one thing that worries me is that, and of course, Michael Clark is absolutely right. What's happened now is that a America in particular is trying to catch up with what they've sort of put to one side during their focus on counterinsurgency. But it's also important, I think, while they get back to that new focus, that they don't actually forget about counterinsurgency because it still will have its uses, particularly, obviously, counterterrorism uh, is going to be remain a crucial aspect of, uh, of the Western uh, nations. And uh, to just ignore all the lessons that, that they may have learned, hopefully, uh, from counterinsurgency uh, would be a bad mistake. And Michael Clark, 20 years ago, the West set off on this global war on terror. We talk about whether the West has the capacity to lead now, though. Yes, there's no doubt about it. The last 20 years, we've had our successes in the last 20 years, undoubtedly, and we are we are safer from the levels of terrorism that are out there all over the world now than we were before 9-11, that's for sure. But it has drained us. It's drained us morally. It's drained us uh, in terms of our social cohesion and the, and the way in which we think about this, partly because we seem to have been involved in wars a long way away for rather confused objectives. If the threats to our society were closer, and I think they're about to be closer in the next few years, then I think we will have to re-engage our sense of national purpose. But undoubtedly, uh, our capacity to lead, that is the, the capacity of the West to lead and the capacity of America to lead the West, is undoubtedly harmed by quite a lot of what's happened in the last two decades. Why, why do you say that the threats will be closer Michael? Because I think that the Russians will probe Europe. They have a lot of irons in the fire from Northern Europe to Southeastern Europe to the Mediterranean to the near Middle East. Um, I think we will feel the pressure of Russian muscle flexing. We will also feel the pressure of China's assertiveness in, in different ways. And I think we will feel that we don't have the capacity and probably not immediately the unity to deal with that in a, in a resolute way, in the way that we resolutely dealt with it during the Cold War. We're going back into something similar to that, much more difficult. And I'm not sure that we've, we've got our heads around the nature of that threat. Mike Evans, uh, what do you think? think has been achieved over the past 20 years? I think things are more difficult now for us as nations in the, in, in the Western alliance to come together as a cohesive force, partly because uh, for economic pressures reasons, uh, we don't have the forces that, that we used to have in the Cold War, obviously. We will have huge pressures on us in the next uh, decade with China and uh, Russia, particularly China, becoming more and more assertive uh, I think we will have uh, great pressures on us to provide a cohesive alliance. So that, that is probably one of the biggest challenges for the US and for the US-led NATO alliance. Michael Evans, thank you very much for your time today. This is Sitrep. Sitrep.
As the Taliban tightens its control of Afghanistan, British soldiers involved in the evacuation effort have returned to their bases. Two companies of troops from the 2nd Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, were drafted in at short notice to fly to Kabul. They're now back in Cyprus, and Tim Cooper has been speaking to them. To York's headquarters is pretty quiet on my visit, the normal work going on in the usual way, a far cry from their recent Afghanistan mission. Captain David Kellett, second in command of Alma Company, explains how the deployment came about. The uh, initial call came on a Sunday, uh, and then during the week we're kind of getting ready, doing the pre-deployment checks here, etc. Uh, and then on the Thursday, the day we were meant to be going to leave, actually, uh, we deployed from here, uh, from Akatiri Airport. What was the scene like when the ramp went down on the back of the aeroplane and you're in Kabul Airport? So it was really busy and kind of, uh, a lot of people there have been to uh, Kabul Airport only a year before, uh, including myself, so kind of leaving, you know, the state that the airport was in when we left last year to what we arrived to was drastically different. I asked Private Jake Howarth how he felt as the plane arrived in Afghanistan. I was quite nervous, to be fair. Obviously, when you look at the news, it looked quite bad. It runs through your mind, like, what is actually going on? And then, obviously, you've got the fear factor. You know, I didn't know what was going to go on at all. Am I going to really come back from this? Loads of different thoughts going through my head when I was on the flight going to Kabul. You land. What were you faced with? What was the first thing you saw? Walking along the runway, first thing you heard was uh, gunshots straight away from the uh, Turkish, I believe it was. And then you see barbed wire and there's just in between the barbed wire, you'll have like a barbed wire in a square and you'll just have loads of civilians, a population just in there waiting to get on the flights. But at the time, we didn't know what that was. Two Yorks are the regional standby battalion, held ready, acclimatised to the hot conditions in Episcopi. They train constantly for possible missions. But this one was totally beyond what they would normally be asked to do. Here's Company Sergeant Major of Alma Company, Warrant Officer 2, Ross Willis. If honest, um... I was a bit shocked myself. I didn't know what I was going into. It's easy when you've got your Derricks and your and your Torrells, whatever, you know what you're going into. It was um, pretty loose. We knew that there was people who were displaced and there, there were some desperate people there. And then you get picked up by um, the 16th Brigade Sergeant Major and you get walked across and he went, stand by. You're going to see some stuff as soon as you walk in. And there's people laid out, women, kids, people injured. There was somebody um, getting stretched off, uh, covered in bandages and... Uh, you know, for the young private soldiers who you train for with them, um, you know, amputee in action and all kind of all those kind of agencies, it's something they're not used to because it's not a it's not a soldier or it's not the enemy. It's just people, and that uh, you can see it in the faces. And actually, you've got, got to get past that and get them to an area where you can go. Right now, do you get it? Now do you understand? He said, now do you understand why? I don't really understand what's happening as well. Do you get it? And like that, yeah. And it really it just comes from senior NCOs using their experience. The two York's troops help move thousands of entitled personnel and those under the Arab scheme, like interpreters. A major part of their mission was to show empathy, to show reassurance, to talk. Private Jake Howarth again. You'd, they'd sit in an area and you'd sort of like give them food or water, if they wanted food or water, or you'd just talk to people. So or if they had any questions, you'd answer the questions. Pretty much provide protection for them. How did you feel watching all this happen in front of you? Quite sad, to be fair. Quite sad. It's a different, a different bit of life that you don't see. So I've never seen that before. Um, I've never seen people jumping over fences because they're that desperate to get away. There was children who had been injured as well, and children were scared, and children who, who didn't really know what was going on. And it, it's quite sad to say that children have come into this world, and that's what that's the first thing they're seeing. It was intense, arduous, and tested their training. W02 Willis. I'm proud of the soldiers. They. They did do a good job. Soldiers, two hours rest at best, grabbing sleep where they could, 
even senior NCOs stepping down into roles as soldiers to make sure soldiers got more rest than themselves and, sac and that personal sacrifice in, 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 the, in looking after themselves to ensure that the, the lads and the, the young lasses got, got the rest that they needed and make sure they were able to function. The two York soldiers who deployed to Kabul have been through an extensive package of decompression where they've been able to share their thoughts and feelings with their colleagues. Now, a well-earned spot of leave beckons. Tim Cooper reporting for SITREP in Cyprus. Scotland's First Minister this week set a deadline for staging a second referendum on independence. Nicola Sturgeon wants the vote to take place before the end of 2023. But the UK government has to agree, and Boris Johnson has repeatedly said it's not the right time. Despite that, reports suggest the MOD is starting to think about the implications of a vote for Scottish independence, not least on Britain's nuclear deterrent, currently based on the Clyde. The SNP has promised an independent Scotland would ban all nuclear weapons. Professor Malcolm Chalmers, the Deputy Director General of RUSI, co-wrote a report on the challenges of relocating Britain's nuclear submarines ahead of the first referendum in 2014. He told me moving a nuclear base is anything but straightforward. No, it's not. I mean, there would be quite a bit of uh, new work uh, to refurbish Devonport uh, for the relocation of the submarines. And there's lots of other practical issues you'd have to think about, not least the relocation of personnel. As we know, it's not easy to recruit people for submarine service with all the technical skills they need, but also the, the difficult lifestyle for many. All those folk are now based in Scotland. There are about 8,000 service personnel there. Are they all going to want to relocate to the other end of the country? Many of them will have families and so on. So, But secondly, and very importantly, the nuclear infrastructure in Scotland is on two sites. There's Fast Lane, the submarine base, but there's also just over in, in the next uh, valley, uh, there's Coolport, which is the storage bunkers uh, for the UK's nuclear warheads. Devonport will provide, I think, uh, the most likely candidate for relocation of a submarine base. But because it's in the middle of a densely populated area, it wouldn't be possible to have the weapons storage facility there. You'd have to essentially build a new base for weapon storage. And that, would be, I think, would have to be a greenfield site. I don't see any way around that. It would take some time to complete it. Anything less than 10 years, I think, would be unrealistic. The Scottish government's already accepted Trident would have to stay for several years in an independent Scotland. One of the suggestions is to negotiate a deal to stay on the Clyde, although that's hard to really envisage. The SNP-led government would be unlikely to agree to that. If the uh, Scottish government, after uh, independence, uh, were to insist on the nuclear weapons uh, leaving within the first couple of years, two or three years then I don't think there's a viable possibility for the UK remaining a nuclear weapon state with an operational arsenal. I just don't see how that would occur because you can't relocate that quickly, in my view. That, I think, would be a very difficult thing for the UK to accept. And I think it would impact the whole negotiation over the terms of independence, of separation. But one can also think, and I think, in my view, more likely look at a, a softer form of separation, which respects the wishes of both countries, uh, both the long-term wish of a Scottish government not to have 
nuclear weapons base in its territory, but also the wish of the UK, if it give it the option at least, to remain a nuclear weapons state by building an infrastructure on its own territory. And all that, I think, points to an arrangement uh, whereby uh, Fastlane and Coolport can remain uh, UK bases on Scottish territory until they have enough time to build replacement facilities in England. And what do you make of the options that have been in the media about the possibility of moving the subs to an allied country like France, the United States? It would be very difficult. It would Symbolically, it would undermine the operational independence of Britain's force in a way which I think would be deeply damaging to the UK's reputation. The idea that it's much easier than moving to England, I think, is a, is a false one, because unless... Uh, the UK is going to subordinate its own nuclear forces to the, those of the US or France and, and have all the logistics support, the staffing, the dockyard workers, the weapon storage, uh, the repair and maintenance, the, uh, you know, the, the accommodation for the crews, everything that goes into Fastlane Coolport. Unless we're going to use American and French facilities under their control, You'd have to replicate uh, all those facilities on foreign soil. And quite frankly, I cannot see uh, either the American or French governments uh, being prepared to have what would essentially be a foreign nuclear base outside their control in their territory. So I just think it has a very superficial attraction. But I, I think one of my observations on this, it's setting up three options Uh, which each in their own way are unrealistic. It's unrealistic to relocate in the short term. It uh, it would be the end of an independent deterrent uh, to have uh, at least a sustained basing. I can imagine a temporary basing, but a sustained basing over a number of years in France or the US. And then uh, finally, the the idea of a sovereign base agreement, I think, is itself... Uh, politically uh, a non-starter. Professor Malcolm Chalmers there. Well, let's pick that up with Michael Clark. What do you make, Michael, of Malcolm Chalmers' suggestion that this could end with the UK no longer able to remain a nuclear power? Well, I doubt if this issue would actually kill the the nuclear programme in Britain in itself, but it might turn out to be the final straw if other developments moved in that same direction. I mean, the things that Malcolm is, is talking about are certainly very powerful problems, but if the United Kingdom is determined to remain a nuclear power in the way it always says it is, then I think it would find ways of overcoming those problems. And I think he pointed himself there to the, the likely outcome, which is that if Scotland voted for independence, there would be a very long process of negotiation. One would imagine something lasting, you know, 10, 12, 14 years, something that had an Endpoint and possibly some elements of the British system might temporarily relocate, say, to the United States, not to France, I think, before coming back to new bases. But the issue would be huge. And if other elements of the whole package were looking doubtful, this might be the clincher which moved Britain in a non-nuclear direction. But in itself, I don't believe that it would. And while the MOD says the nuclear deterrent is staying in Scotland, it would be bizarre if they weren't at least thinking about the implications of an independence vote. Yes. And I mean, in 2014, it was always said that no planning was being done because they didn't want to talk about it in case it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And remember, too, that if an independent Scotland wants to get into NATO, I can promise Scottish leaders of an independent Scotland they will not be admitted to NATO if they are kicking out the nuclear weapons of, of one of NATO's most important powers. So they have a, a big incentive to, to go forward in a very mature negotiating way to make this a, a long term 
um, aspiration rather than a quick response to independence. And I think that uh, Whitehall will be thinking we better get some structures in place now to take forward a big, prolonged negotiation. The MOD has so far spent the best part of £4 billion on the project to deliver hundreds of Ajax armoured vehicles. But ministers have admitted there's no realistic timetable for getting them into service. This week, they also revealed more than 300 personnel involved in tests of the vehicles have been advised to seek medical attention. Work continues to find a fix for the vibrations that cause nausea and temporary hearing loss. It means older vehicles will have to remain in service far longer than planned. Tests have had to be halted twice, but they've started again. Despite that, Jeremy Quinn, the minister responsible for procurement, has told MPs Ajax won't be put into service until all the problems have been fixed. This House, Mr Deputy Speaker, has been quite rightly concerned about the welfare of our service personnel. Extensive work has been undertaken through the summer on the health and safety aspects of the noise and vibration concerns. A report into these concerns is being undertaken independently of the Ajax delivery team by the MOD's Director of Health and Safety. Uh, Michael Clark, £4 billion, no vehicles delivered, no timetable for delivery. Ajax is certainly a troubled project, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it doesn't have many friends in Whitehall. In fact, you've got to go back at least 10 or 15 years to find people who were enthusiastic for Ajax at the time. And these these vibration issues are not just one problem. It isn't just finding the, finding the little bit that's vibrating and stopping it doing so. All vehicles vibrate. Um, and when you know cars vibrate, um, but cars are only one to one and a half tons. These are forty-ton vehicles, and the problem is the vibrations occur at cruising speed. And so, if you fix one element of vibration, something else will start up. I mean, this is potentially a showstopper. Vibration sounds a relatively minor thing, but in, a, in an armoured vehicle, it's a very major issue. If you can't solve it, the vehicle is genuinely unusable. Um, you can live with vibrations at high level, at high speed. You can live with the vibrations at low speed. You can't live with systemic vibrations, which is what this seems to be, at cruising speed. And I think the army have got to think very, very carefully. They can't afford to start a new pro- programme. They've either got to go back to using obsolete vehicles, maybe not, maybe sticking with Warrior, and then start to think again. But this is a this is a much bigger problem than people think it is, because the, there, isn't, there isn't a single operational vehicle so far. And it doesn't look as if there will be for quite some time. Finally today, this week saw the formal launch of one of NATO's first new commands since the days of the Cold War. There's British involvement in the Joint Support and Enabling Command set up after Russia's annexation of Crimea. Its role, according to leaders of the alliance, is to cover NATO's back, speeding up the movement of forces in any future crisis. Rob Olver's been to the headquarters in the German city of Ulm. NATO troops exercising in Europe, but they have to be able to move fast. Now a new command helps them do just that. JSEC is the Joint Support and Enabling Command and is based at Ulm in Germany. We are a new entity. The commander is Lieutenant General Jürgen Knapper. We have started with a very small German team. And now we have more and more international soldiers. The command's arrival follows tension with Russia after Moscow annexed Crimea in 2014. Large-scale exercises to test the US ability to reinforce Europe have become routine again. Not since the Cold War have so many American forces crossed the Atlantic. In a crisis, 
JSEC's mission is to help speed up NATO troop movements across Europe. The new command includes 250 military specialists from more than 20 NATO countries. Enemy got, please let me have by the end of this week. There's a 14-strong British contingent in Ulm, which is expected to rise to 20. They include JSEC's Deputy Chief of Staff Operations, Colonel James Phillips. NATO is undergoing a significant adaptation at the moment. There's a lot of change, a lot of uh, development of, of doctrine, at both the strategic and the operational level, and JSEC is part of that mix. JSEC has been launched together with a sister organisation, Joint Force Command Norfolk. The US-based command's tasks include enabling rapid transatlantic troop crossings. In the Cold War days, a lot of NATO's forces were pre-deployed to, to mainland Europe, to Western Europe. That isn't the case anymore. Our forces are lighter and more agile and have to respond globally, whereas before we were more focused on, on the Cold War and the, the Soviet Union as a potential aggressor. Now we have to deal with potentially a state-on-state state threat that might be similar to that, but also we have to be able to support SACA in NATO deployments anywhere across his area of responsibility and potentially outside that. Showing how fast forces can be deployed is itself intended to reduce the risk of war. Jürgen Knapper. It is important to make deterrence credible before we go in a conflict. And that's the reason why we build up the JSEC and the Joint Force Command Norfolk. Not all NATO countries have suitable transport infrastructure for military operations, another handicap for forces on the move, one that NATO's newest command will now seek to remedy. We are working with nations that we've worked alongside on operations in very testing circumstances. So be able to, to be able to work uh, in a a brand new headquarters with excellent facilities, it's actually really quite easy. Colonel James Phillips ending Rob Olver's report. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.